everybody. Brett Stewart here. A quick announcement at the top of the program. Last week's episode, uh, Goodfellas, was a Netflix roulette episode, and that means typically a future classics episode would follow it because our order does go Netflix roulette and then future classics and then around the world. But things have been very crazy here in our, the lives of our three hosts, particularly myself. I was moving. And as a result, we record things a little bit out of order and we do reference the way we recorded it in the program, meaning that you are getting an around the world episode right now after Netflix Roulette instead of a future classics. Now, this isn't a big deal for you guys, hopefully. It just means that those two are reversed in this cycle of movie go round. In the next cycle of five, it'll be future classics before around the world. But in this case, you're going to get around the world first. So that is why this episode is an around the world episode, in case you were wondering. So go ahead, enjoy this episode. We're talking about a movie called Ong Bak, and it is really a fun discussion. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here you go. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme, Around the World. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart and joining me are my two wonderful co-hosts, Nicole Davis. How are you this evening? fell out of a tree recently and a little three-wheeled scooter and uh, then almost got rolled over by a giant Buddha head. But, you know, it's been an eventful week and uh, I can't say that I regret it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I regret being rolled over by a not being rolled over by a giant Buddha head, which happens in this bizarre movie. I don't even know how to int- introduce this movie. It was so weird. And it was David Luzader's pick. How are you? Yes, uh, I I am interested to hear that you are confused by this film. But I think that's good. I think that means we're on a good path. As I've said before, my mission with my Around the World picks is introducing you to seminal martial arts films. And this is definitely one of those. But we'll we'll get there. We'll talk about it. And you know what? I had a totally different reaction to it than I did for uh, Ipman, which was the other martial arts film we watched that I was completely captivated by. Uh, I wasn't as captivated by this movie. I probably should have done this film first and then had you watch (laughs) Ipman. It's just such a uh, high bar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And really, like, this... (laughs) This movie, we'll talk about it later. I don't want to get into it too much right now before we even introduce the film. This movie did a lot to revitalize the martial arts franchise in the modern era. Um, or not franchise, just the, the martial arts genre in the modern era that, you know, that kind of paved the way for stuff like Ipman and, and all that. Um, so really, this movie should have come first in the viewing and then more recent films. But eh, what are you going to do? Well, we got to it anyway, and as an around-the-world pick, it is not from the United States, but rather from Thailand. So it's not. It's also not from China, so we're kind of moving all around uh, parts of Asia to delve into our martial arts films. And this was 2003's Ong Bak, the Thai Warrior, 
When the head of a statue sacred to a village is stolen, a young martial artist goes to the big city and finds himself taking on the underworld to retrieve it. Oh boy, he really does take on the underworld, so much to the point that there's about a 25-minute sequence in this movie where he just fights various people that show up out of the woodwork from the underworld. That, that is the best part of this movie. It is. Down. I agree. Just the various, every and everybody's got like a different like style. Like it's like, it's like a video game. I was about to say, it's <laughs> like Mortal Kombat. Like, very much so. It is very video yeah. gamey. I mean, there's the cheetah and mad dog. <laughs> Like the angry awesome. Australian Big that bear. talks in English, and you have to imagine if Thai audiences are confused. No, I mean, there's probably subtitles. Do you think there's subtitles for him? Do you think there's English yeah. subtitles? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, well, in any case, I love Australian angry man. He is so <laughs> angry and aggressive. Wig. And Oh, the wigs in this movie. Oh my now, god, the wigs. There's a reason for those. There there's are. a reason for the wigs. They are concealing padding for well, people's heads. Because Muay Thai is an insanely dangerous martial art. Yes, it is. There are a lot of elbow strikes to the head, and yeah. those are incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, so many. Like in my, fact, like the yeah. final head strike to the head in the movie, you like see part of the head like indent in. <laughs> yeah. This is probably like my fifth time watching this movie, and you know, those first the first time you're watching it, you're like, "Oh man, I'll, like this is so cool!" All these slow motion shots. By the time, like at this point, having seen it, it's like, "Yep, everybody's wearing helmets underneath <laughs> their hair." Oh yes, there's one that's where it's really obvious. Cheetah. Cheetah. Yeah, I mean, there there's one where somebody's doubling. Um, oh, what's his name, George? Um, whatever his real name is. His name is Mom Jokmak. Yeah, and he jumps out a window to save Ting. And it's very clear that the person jumping out a window (laughs) is wearing a helmet with a blonde wig like painted on it. (laughs) Yes, I rather than the actual actor talking about. Oh, that's beautiful. It is it's glorious. Absolutely. Now, to give those context who decide not to not to watch the films, but rather join in for our witty banter, this movie is all about. It's really a very basic story. Uh, Ting goes off into the big city because a bad guy named Don stole their sacred head thing. Uh, you gotta watch a, out for evil guys named Don. Yes, well, he it's steals, a Buddha he steals head. the head of their of their village deity. Yes, uh, of the, the head of their village deity. Um, who is a form of a Buddha, and he goes to get it and has to go through all sorts of zany adventures in order to get it. And Some very zany adventures. It's very zany. Uh, And he's joined by some zany counterparts. It's really like an ensemble of, like, two, like, bumbling people and, like, really brooding, like, somber young Ting. Because we also have George, who's my favorite character. I love yes. George. He's the best character. And I well, love yeah, his George weird redemption arc. arc. Yeah, yeah, his weird redemption arc is the, the greatest thing ever. <laughs> um, and his personality. And then also, what, Moy Lek? Is that, yeah. is that yeah, the Moy. woman's name? And she's in there. She's in there. I mean, she <laughs> she doesn't oh, offer much so to annoying. the role to me. She's incredibly annoying. But I wanted well, to like her. Okay, so apparently... So uh, there was a, there was some stuff cut out of this film in its various incantations across the globe. Uh, that whole thing with the the girl um, that before we talk about the show, Brett, the girl that like 
Don is trying to get it on with and uh, she ends up like overdosing and dying is Mui's little sister or just her little sister in real life or in the plot no in in the in the plot and they cut that out and that's why like that's why george knows her and that's why there's that scene where they're walking down the street and george is like comforting her before they get abducted uh there was like extra plot in this movie that was cut out like that yeah, plot who needs plot? that would have added yeah. some much needed depth to parts of this plot and i want to talk about let, we're going to go right into the nitty-gritty of that scene <laughs> i'm i'm watching this with people around me and all of a sudden he's like licking a body and all of a sudden he's just smothering her face in cocaine by the way it's my second favorite cocaine scene we've seen so far in movie go round following <laughs> cocaine shaped ukraine in uh, Lord, of War. Lord of War. Yeah. Um, yeah. This scene how is many, so disconcerting. Cocaine scenes are we going to get? Because he just stuff. decides when she's really not into it, he's just going to smother her with cocaine. And I never yeah, thought in my life that you could force great. someone to OD on cocaine. Well, she is already clearly she's high. Stoned oh, 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 yeah, of course. Yeah. Like she's already down the hill, but he really just like pushes the cart the rest of the way down. That was a weird metaphor, right? But like, it works. It was really an unfortunate scene to watch. Um, it was. And now, but now that's Dom doing it. Don doing doing it to her, right? Yeah. Dom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because Even then, like, the shortly man, after she it. gets OD'd by him, Ting literally just like bashes in the front door and begins the most ridiculous slow speed chase i have ever seen in the rickshaws oh the tiny little rickshaws it's amazing i love it but there's something like so innocent about all these little little rickshaws oh yeah this this fleet of tuk-tuks going like 20 miles an hour yeah and it's so dramatic there's like like music that's yeah and they're like blowing up they're falling off rooftops they're being like flipped upside down when they run into things and it's so off the ground oh it's great it is so great and for me one thing i noticed in this movie and a reminder for our listeners you know one of the reason david pixies introduced them to me is because i am not privy to anything in this genre before this podcast and Ipman felt very high budget to me. It felt like the camera work was really spectacular. It felt like the acting was really spectacular. And I don't think either of those things are particularly good in this movie. I think that it would have been even so, cooler if there was great camera work around great martial arts. This but, is like yeah. mid-budget martial arts So, movie. So this movie exists because Tony Jaa wanted to introduce the world to Muay Thai. Um that it was a it was a at that time relatively obscure martial art and he um i mean he really really wanted to get it out there and basically he spent years preparing for this film uh he actually in this film he uses a, an ancient version of muay thai called muay baran yeah. um which he that he involves the weaponry as well as the yeah the and, weaponless yeah yeah, and he had so he had been studying Muay Thai all his life, and then for this movie, for four years, studied Muay Baran. Like the whole point of this film is to show the world, look at how cool Muay Thai is, and it worked. It works, <laughs> and it is really cool. But what I, what I was kind of getting at is like, 
the the tuk tuk chase is like the one moment where I was like, this has a reasonable budget because of how over the top <laughs> it is. Because yeah. I was used to like really sharp camera camera work in Ipman, especially with like quick moving martial arts and like utilizing mm-hmm. like the staffs and stuff. And this movie does a very different approach. It's almost like instead of making the camera work as fluid as the fighting, it's more like a fight club type camera work where it's just kind of rotating around the people as they fight rather than doing like elaborate shots, like on top of their, on top of their weapons and like down the shaft of the thing that Ipman is hitting somebody with. And like, it's not near as elaborate. It feels much more rugged to me. Well, I mean, to be fair, the camera work, while not as, it's not as flashy as the work that's done in Ipman, but it's definitely done with an eye toward making the martial arts moves look as cool as possible. So there's a lot of stuff from lower angles. Right. You, know, you see Tony Jaw do a lot of leaping over things from a low angle to make it look like he's even higher than he actually is, which you really don't need to do because he's really pretty high. Yeah. So he's very jumpy, flippy guy, well, and, which and, I had forgotten when I and, watched this again. And they, you know, they don't use any wires. They don't use nope. any CGI in this film. Um, the multiple, you know, the multiple angle thing almost is ridiculous. But when you remember it as like, this is a demonstration of how awesome this martial arts style is. Uh, it does like make some of the shots cool. I mean, like that, that sequence when they're running from the guys and he jumps through that hoop of barbed wire. Uh, right. And like flips With through both these. both arms and both legs forward at yeah. the time. And like flips through those two panes of glass it's like man like the ridiculousness of this movie makes it something special i think so yeah i watched the uh the trailer for this there's a trailer that's uh sort of hosted by the rizza of the wu-tang clan and uh, he's like you know you're gonna love it go watch it it's (laughs) you know a great time and the the taglines for this movie in the trailer are no safety nets no computer graphics no strings attached. So really? There's no wire work in here. I love there's it. There's no, you know, there's not a lot of safety network for the higher stunts. There's no computer graphics done in terms of the stunt work anyway. Uh, this is definitely, you know, I saw a little bit of behind the scenes stuff and they practiced and practiced and practiced oh, yeah. these stunts before they filmed them. Yeah, it's a very impressive movie in that regard, and it is a totally different style of martial arts than I had seen before. And you know, to this movie's it's very credit, brutal. Yeah, it introduces, yeah. and that's I think that's why I'm mentioning Fight Club because that scene that David and I referred to at the top of the program is literally just him getting into increasingly more intense and brutal fights as he mows his way through like eight different fighters in very video game-esque format where they all have their own theme, they all have their own style, they're really all like ethnically different, and uh, Mm -hmm. then like literally there's one guy that shows up, he seems like maybe Hispanic. Oh, by the way, I want to throw out just in terms of like ethnicity in this movie there's like a bunch of white people in the audience with beers thinking this is the greatest thing ever there's like the one very racially diverse club yeah there's the one black man that i just love who thinks it's the greatest thing ever and the movie cuts to him like 10 times in fact well yeah it's like here you did a great job let me throw you a quarter yes exactly (laughs) uh and 
this guy comes in that I think it might be of like Hispanic origin or something, and he just gives him this really dirty look, and then just picks up a chair and just nails him with it, and then like grabs like a table and like pushes the table onto his chest and just starts kicking in the table until the ca- table yeah. breaks. He fights with a lot of furniture. Does uh, this last guy with the tattoos? Yeah, yes. wild dog, and I love, I love it. And then like the the guy gives him a knife <laughs> to kill Tony Jaw. Uh, and I love that Tony Jaw's response is to chuck him out a window and knee him in the chest. Like it is super rad. Oh my god, the the yeah. chest kneeing in this movie, like oh. okay, two two chest knees. I want to talk about. First one <laughs> is the Australian dude who just starts beating the crap out of one guy until he's almost dead. Until Ting finally decides to get into the ring, and while he's beating this guy up, this girl runs into the audience and he just backhands her. Uh, and then the other like kneeing into the chest I want to talk about is the rope fisting fight, which I have a lot of questions about. Um, uh-huh. Where he just starts kneeing... The guy, the Kai Ting is fighting just starts, like, kneeing him into the chest. And it looks yeah. aggressively painful. Like, rib-breaking, yeah. internal bleeding painful. Oh, sure. There would be many broken ribs in real life. Mm-hmm. So, so, but I mean, this... You're you're talking about one of my favorite fights. The first one that you're referring to, it's like he's getting ready to go get his money. There happens to be this sort of little drama playing out in the middle of the ring uh, where the guy is like getting ready to, to rough up the waitress and some other, you know, Thai gentleman steps in to challenge him and get him to stop. And, you know, as... Oh, maybe I'm confusing two fights. I think you are. I think you're, I, you're I am. Confusing okay, the fight sorry. where he takes out that guy in one strike, which is right. Awesome. That's that's my favorite. Is the very first one where he's just going to get his money from the betting window. The fighter in the middle stops him, and he just immediately floors him with a knee to the face. Right. <laughs> it's like, bam! Guy falls over, totally unconscious. Fights over. Yeah, the crowd is unhappy because the fight's so short, but I thought it was the best thing ever because that's that's efficient, you know? Mm-hmm. I took martial arts in my 20s, um, and my instructor was very big on not spending a lot of energy on flashy moves or wasted motion. He's like, you hit him here, you hit him here, you hit him here. You take Fights him down over, as fast as possible. Done. Yeah, exactly. Take them out as fast as possible. It's, you know, it's less dangerous for you. You use less energy. So that was that was his philosophy. So every time I see efficiency in a martial arts film, I'm very, very happy. (laughs) And one of the elements of this film that I wanted to talk about, I briefly mentioned there was the the rope fist fight, which I believe Mm -hmm. is called Moya Baran or ancient Thai boxing. No, no. Um, th- what they were doing was just, it was a boxing match with ropes <laughs> instead of, I mean, boxing match, quote unquote. It was a fight where they were just using, uh, Mui Baran is just the, the style of oh, okay. martial okay. arts that Tony Jaa was using. Okay, because one yeah, thing I'm confused in, in about. In Thailand, Muay Thai is boxing. In China, Kung Fu is boxing. Oh, yeah. I see. So, so I understand upon looking this up that wrapping yourself from all the way to the knuckles, pretty much all the way up your forearm in really, like, taunt rope is supposed to yeah. protect you. I feel like that would hurt a lot more if you got punched with someone that had rope, like, knots of rope around the knuckles. 
oh, sure, it's going to hurt your opponent much more than it's going to hurt you. Yep. So this is not of the same mechanism of Americanized boxing of we want oh, to make sure no. no one gets that hurt. <laughs> no, I think they're trying to knock you out faster. <laughs> okay. So, right. so this this protection is definitely just a defensive thing. Then it's not so. It's not to protect your opponent for fear of liability. Okay, that's good to know. Because oh, no. that even, looked terrifying uh, to me. Even like kind of going beyond the Mui Thai Mui Baran thing, the style of Mui Baran he uses is Mui Karat, which uh, the way that you know that is because he wraps his wraps himself all the way up to the elbow. That is a very specific style for the kind of martial arts that he was using. Mm, that's terrifying. I feel like that would really <laughs> hurt. Uh, but do you know what else would really hurt? A version of this movie with Steven Seagal. <laughs> Uh, and okay. that apparently uh. almost happened. And today I learned that here's the thing. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be straight up honest. Here's what I know about Steven Seagal. He was in Under Siege. He's insane. He was in Under Siege too. He yeah. looks insane. He is insane. And I'm pretty sure he really loves Putin. That's all I know. Oh yeah, and he got and he's an alleged sexual assaulter as of the Me Too movement. That's all I know about this man. So I learned today that he was apparently a martial arts instructor for a James Bond movie that wasn't a James Bond movie. Never say never again. So I didn't even know that he had a background in martial arts. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's an Aikido master. Mm-hmm. So they almost made a movie with this guy? No, no. So they he almost bought the rights to distribute this film. Um, Luc Besson ended up buying the right to distribute the film internationally. Uh, but Steven Seagal wanted to distribute it here in America and wanted to, uh, the, the sources are a little iffy. There's some that say that he wanted to just record a voiceover at the beginning and the end. Others saying he wanted to film actual scenes with Tony jaw, but the crux of it would have been that he was Tony jaw's master who taught him. Oh, how to fight. first of all, I need something I need in my life upon Wikipedia searching is apparently not only is Steven Seagal an actor and martial arts master in theory, theory, he was also a short lived solo musician with their released albums such as Mojo Priest, which has songs such as Gunfire in a Juke Joint, Alligator Ass, Hoochie Coochie Man, She Dat Pretty. And Shake with a guest appearance by Bo Diddley. I need to hear this record. Oh, my God. Quote, all of the music takes itself so seriously that it borders on delusional excess from all music. (laughs) Quote, quote, it rarely rises above the par band pedigree. And most of the time, it isn't even that good. Oh, I need to hear yeah. that. But I digress. That would have been awful. That would have been awful. Yeah, it's about a step down from Bruce Willis's album, The Return of Bruno. I love Bruce Willis's music. It's so bad. <laughs> oh, I'm glad someone else knows about it. Uh, but yeah, I'm. I mean, and here, let's be honest. As we've discussed, like Tony Jaa is not a good actor. But it would have well, been worse. Fir- we we discussed that before the show. We I did mean, okay. I'm... So so getting into that now, the acting in this movie is not particularly good. It oh, doesn't have well, to be. It's all about hitting each the, other. That the guy who's playing uh, George yes, slash uh, what's his real name? 
Mom Jukbok. No, no, no. Oh. I mean, in the the characters. Humle. Humle. Okay, so Humle is I, he's my favorite actor. You know, he's at first the guy who takes advantage of him and is out for himself. But you, you know, and over time you discover that he's looking out for this girl, and he eventually becomes an advocate for Ting, played by Tony Ja, and helps him on his quest and. You know, he becomes less selfish as the movie goes on and has an actual arc. And I think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But uh, poor Tony, you know, he's a fantastic martial artist. He's kind of charming in a, you know, in a country boy sort of way, which is what he's portraying in the movie. So that works perfectly. Um, but whenever he's called upon to speak, it's it's not terribly well delivered. And he has this sort of incongruously high voice yes he does to go with this physicality and it's Uh, very strange yes yeah absolutely and i one thing i do love about humle or george is his arc as a character and he's really the only character to have an arc and uh Mm. what i love about his arc is that the the eclipse of that arc or the climax of that arc is him giving this really meaningful look to Ting and being like, can I at least help you start that bike? <laughs> uh, because Ting is trying to chase after the people who have the uh, the statue head and he can't get the like the little, you know, tiny like Yamaha thing to go that they're all on. And and finally, George is like, no, I finally see that I am supposed to be a meaningful member of this quest to retrieve the heritage of our village and i am from our village and ting is like no you're not man you're you're a jerk and then he's like can i at least just start your bike then and then they just go off in the bike together it's great i love it yeah and then the guy gets his arm broken and beaten to death with a hammer (laughs) and then killed oh god that's so awful i can his death is so throws himself over the ung box head to protect it and he takes a sledgehammer to the back three times yeah and i and here's the thing you think maybe he won't die right and then a giant boulder head falls on him and it is the saddest death scene because you have moy lek she's just like freaking out she's like george and then ting is trying as best he can to feign emotion and he's like, do well in school. It's so bad. <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean, that death scene. That, that was, that, no, no, that was, look, look, that was a sweet little moment. There was actually a version where he survived all of that and is seen uh, returning home. Then the director was like, no, it's more meaningful if he dies. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's kill him. I think we'll kill you. Can we talk about like the giant boulder head thing that is apparently supposed to be significant as well to Ting? Because like the bad, like chronic smoker mafia guy is like, if you did all that for this tiny head, imagine what you'll do for this giant head. Well, it's you know you have this this character who obviously reveres religious symbols, uh, and. As we all know, the bigger your religious symbol, the more important it is. <laughs> and uh, 
then you have this guy who declares himself God at some point in the film. It, they really, really cannot be more polar opposites. You have Tony Jaa, this incredibly strong guy who you know knows a bunch of martial arts, and then you have a guy in a wheelchair who uh, has to have one of those things up against his neck in order to talk. Oh, the throat buzzer, yeah. Yeah, and it's there's an a moment choice for a villain. Very interesting, and there's a mo- there's a m- moment where he's like, you know what? I am God. I'm my God. I should be your God too. <laughs> like he is an interesting character to me, uh, and dies being crushed by a giant boulder thing head. Irony. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Although he's got one of my favorite moments in the movie. I mean, you know, obviously he's a terrible guy and he's the the big villain of the piece. Uh, but there's one moment in the uh, the first um, you know fight club sequence where he's betting against this other guy, and when his fighter wins, he puts the buzzer up against his throat just so the other guy can hear him laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <spat him. laughs> I thought that was that was pretty good. That's an extra nice detail. What is it always with like, like, like we've had multiple like handicapped Bob Bond villains? What is with? Yeah, that's not great. That's not great. That's the disability as a sign of evil. Right. Like, what is what is the deal with that trope? Like, oh, I'm the bad guy in a wheelchair, and like that's a thing in Bond. It's either it's it's um, an external manifestation of the the you know the um, broken person inside of them, or it's you know just karmic. Uh, payback for the evil they've done in their life, but it, that's that's something that can that can stop any old time now. Right, right. And I think also part of it's like, look how much evil and damage I can do from this chair. And it's just such a dumb trope that this movie. I, I yeah, I, I would agree. It's a dumb trope. I think the only time that it's really done well in a meaningful way is in the movie Unbreakable. Yes, uh, is that with Sam? Samuel Jackson's character has the whole brittle bone syndrome and ends up in a wheelchair by the end of the film. Um, because yeah, he is, he is the antithesis to Bruce Willis's character. Oh, and I've never seen the next this movie for... coming out called the, you never seen unbreakable. No. What? what? Oh my God. Wait, it's, is it, is this the thing like that I should have seen film? before I saw that movie that Split. came out two years ago? Yes, before you see the movie Glass, which is starring Samuel Jackson reprising the character of no, Mr. Glass. No, I'm talking about like the most. I'm talking about the M. Night Shyamalan movie yeah, that Split. came out like, yes, two, you two, two, see two years ago. Before you see Split, yeah, yeah I saw Split. Shows up at the, <laughs> as a result, didn't understand Spoiler, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> it's been out a couple yeah, years. It, it it takes place in the same universe quote-unquote oh i need to see that then well in any case uh i thought for a second i thought you were talking about unbroken and i'm like what the angelina jolie movie (laughs) okay uh now the most annoying little sister on earth is in this movie i think uh and so does nicole she's bad yeah she's oh god is she george's little sister She's his, like, adopted little sister. And why is he making jokes about her banging her teacher? Yeah. I think they probably met on the street 
or when they were both in dire circumstances yep. they and kind of bond together to help each other out. They run scams together. And uh, so he kind of looks out for her uh, while she helps to earn the money because she's better at getting the money than he is. Um, but, you know, she's just... Oh, so <sighs> annoying. She's nasal and annoying. She's and just that extra. She's so extra, she, as the millennials would say. Yeah, she wins 15 times in a row, which is just indiscreet to say the least when you're trying really, to scam it's somebody. It's a bad con. It's a very bad con. <laughs> yeah, a very bad con. So, um, yeah, and I mean, at the at the end where, when George dies, she's like literally screaming at him un- without stopping for minutes on end trying to get him to come back. And it's just, oh, it gets grating. After all, you know, you want to like her because she's younger and she's plucky and she's just, you know, she's right. a scrappy kid living she's on the, the streets and trying to go film. to college. She's the only girl in the film with any kind of role whatsoever other than, you know, the the female elder back in Ting's village right. with no teeth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And multiple of these actors, uh, her and also the guy who plays George showed up in a movie called The Bodyguard, which goes to show you, based on my previous experience or lack thereof with these movies, I saw that and said, wait, I don't remember them in 1992's Kevin Costner vehicle, The Bodyguard, with Whitney Houston. That's awful. Where (laughs) are they? Uh, Very, very different films, I have now learned. Uh, Though I also would like to see that film. (laughs) So, she's awful. She's absolutely awful. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I totally agree. Now, let's talk a little bit about the appeal of martial arts films. This is something that Cole put in her docket, and I think it's important to address because they are an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I put this in because, you know, we talk about movies in in great detail, and sometimes I want to go back and look at larger themes, and there's there's not always a lot of bigger themes in martial arts movies and probably in this one in particular there's not so much (laughs) other than you know the evil of the big city versus simple country life kind of thing um but you know i sat down to think about it and i'm like why why do we like movies where people beat the snot out of each other what's what is the appeal of of watching these. And I mean, I've got my own ideas about it, but I'm curious about what you guys think. I I think uh, part of it is that these guys possess abilities that, but most people do not, you know, they have this technical level of ability that is just above so many people. It's like, I can't, you know, I can watch demonstrations and people going through very, very special choreographed, uh, you know, here's this move to this move, blah, blah, blah. But, and, you know, walking down the street, I'm not going to see as much as the 1980s would have me believe and I want to happen. Two guys on the street are not going to break <laughs> into a martial arts fight. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's just like every time I see a piece of cardboard, I just sit there for a minute wondering when the breakdance competition is going to begin. <laughs> um, and this is like a way to see these people who are very technically skilled doing something awesome that I can't do and wish that I could. 
I think that's part of it. I think there's a lot to it, but I think that's part of it. Well, to reference a scene that David has referenced numerous times in our discussions throughout the last almost two years of podcasting together, sometimes you really just want to see Matt Damon punch somebody with a book. Like, there's something really (laughs) killing about that. Um, But outside of that, I think that... This is this is a primal thing, right? Like this goes. This is like we want to see <laughs> people fight, but all it. the way going back to gladiators and boxing as a sport, and just like you just want to see other people beat other people up because <laughs> it's there is cool. Something- to that and by the way is our first t-shirt going to be sometimes you want to see matt damon punch somebody with a book <laughs> because i'm no because it's a magazine no he punches him with a book it's a book one born ultimatum he punches oh, the guy no, with i'm talking book. about the first one where he rolls up a magazine no, that's oh, i forgot about that movie. that's great that's the too. second one he fights a guy in a knife fight with a rolled up magazine and that is awesome <laughs> well, they all blur together after a while <laughs> i know but i, I so much. Uh, <laughs> that needs to be I, our first t-shirt email us yeah. movie go round at tiltingwindmillstudios.com if you would buy that t-shirt yeah i i think also there is something where typically like the hero is really easy to root for in martial arts films right. you know, they're very careful to not have it be someone like oh kind of with like a dark past and oh he could be like could be a good guy could be a bad guy it's like no he typically has the righteous side it's it's usually a very clear good versus evil fight and you know that is something that is appealing to audiences he also for some reason always lets himself be the underdog like willingly like you, I, I'm saying this purely based on seeing two of these movies. You see, like Ipman or Yipman, who really doesn't want to fight anybody and really like tries to be reserved about his power, which makes it all that more badass when he just starts nailing like 20 people at once. And the same thing kind of happens in this movie with Ting, where he really has to be convinced to fight. Uh, especially when it opens up into that one scene where they have to really convince him to fight one Australian man, which then leads into like 15 other people. So really, yeah, once you let the bear loose, he's really just going to go loose, but he really is restrained in doing so. And which, his master, his master says, like, I've taught you this, now yet never use it. Right. right. Never use it. You now have this special knowledge bestowed upon you. And so there's something I think about that as well. Like they, they, they make themselves the underdogs. They make it. So when they finally unleash, it's that much more impactful. So, yeah, I mean, it's all those things. I just, yeah. I mean, it's so much with martial arts and with fighting in general. I mean, like, why do we like action movies? It's the same answer, right? I think. Uh, Yeah. I think, I think maybe to some degree, I, I agree that they're usually the underdog, typically because, I mean, that while it's a trope in movies, it is generally a true thing that most people who um, teach martial arts will teach you that you should use it as little as humanly possible. You know, they'll teach you to the best of their ability and then say, don't use this unless you absolutely have to. And so people, you know, in these movies are usually pushed into using it by circumstance. You know, they never do it by choice. It's always in self-defense or jumping to the defense of somebody who can't defend themselves. Um, so, yeah, they do. They do become the underdog or the hero for the underdog. Um, and I think I agree with David as well that it's partly just 
admiring skills you know it's like watching gymnastics or figure skating you know it's like there's something that i could never do and it's just this incredible show of physical prowess um are there any martial arts at the olympics yeah there's there's a judo in the summer Mm -hmm. olympics yep okay so they just never show it on tv yeah. Right. Okay. Have, like, yeah, ESPN I've learned like seven sports exist that. that I didn't know were sports in the last like three weeks, just by casually <laughs> yeah, tuning into the Winter Olympics. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with both of you absolutely. And another thing I want to address about this movie that I just find really funny is that there's a bunch of like weird things in the background, and you, know, uh, you yeah. mentioned one of them, Nicole. Uh, what was it? The um, the spy the game, spy game poster, the spy game poster. Uh, and and there's also like a shot that has in the background um, like a sign that says, "Hi Spielberg, let's do it together," because the director really wanted to work with Steven Spielberg. And then yes. there's another pillar later in the Tuk Tuk Chase that says. Hi, Luke Besson. We are waiting for you, who is a French producer-director uh, who would later go on to purchase the international distribution rights of the film. So, uh, it worked, I guess. But I just love the thing that I see a lot in these foreign films, especially in Asia and also in India. I noticed this in India as well. Uh, and, Nicole, you mentioned this as well, that there's a fascination with our culture, like with like random words and just printing things just because they're Western. And even if they don't necessarily know what it means. And I saw this a lot in the, in Indian films that I've watched where in Indian films, they'll just have shirts that just say like random English words on them and they'll think it's really cool. And that's all over this movie. And I just love that. It's just so weird. Yeah. I mean, if you look around in, you know, here in America, you'll see a lot of T-shirts with like Chinese characters. Oh, it's on totally them. same way around. You're totally right. Yeah, because it people think they look cool and they're badass looking, and for all you know, it could say picnic table, and you'd have no idea. And you're just walking around with random words on your shirt because you think the characters look cool, and that is equally true in Japan and China and Korea that they will wear shirts with. <laughs> completely random English words and phrases on them that make no sense whatsoever uh, just because they think that the English lettering looks cool. Someone please find us. Someone walking around somewhere in Asia in a photo of a t-shirt that says picnic table. Because I'd really love to see that. (laughs) That would be great. Uh, I I actually got that off a, a tattoo website. Somebody once put up their... You know, here's a photo of my tattoo. I thought it looked really cool, but I'm not sure what it means. And somebody's like, it's <laughs> Lovely. I love that. Don't just rely. A PSA to all of our listeners considering tattoos. Don't just rely on Google Translate. At least get a no. second or third opinion. And also, <laughs> never go in and get anything from a book. Never get anything. No, no. before you go in there, guys. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Always get custom. Never pick out the flash artwork from the wall. Right. You never use flash artwork from the internet as your tattoo. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> nope. 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 So, this movie spurred two sequels? 
that both okay. star Tony Jaa. At least two. It, it, okay, that's boy. That's two let's let's kind of close out here because the second one I did a little bit of reading involves like the slave trade and like a All vicious right. warlord. So after this movie came out, Tony Jaa was given money to direct and star in the sequel. Uh, it became a gigantic mess. That has elements bloated. of fantasy. It, uh, yeah, it is set many centuries ago. Um, it got to the point where it had to be split into two movies. Um, <laughs> and even like, with all, because it became so bloated, and with that happening, the third film is considered a just real bad failure. Just horrible. Um, and a lot of studios don't want to work with Tony Jaa anymore because of those two movies. Aww. Yeah. Oh, it's really it. too bad because he is he is an amazing oh, martial artist. When this movie came out, it was like, this is the next martial arts star. Like, this guy yeah. has brought energy back into the martial arts scene. Uh, he's going to be, you know, the next uh, Jet Li, Jackie Chan, all those guys. And just really, he's doing like one film a year, barely. In America, he's been in uh, Fast and Furious 7 and Triple X 2, The Return of Xander Cage. Oh, no. Oh, Not no. in like starring roles, just as like, and Tony Jaws also here. <laughs> He's over That's there, over in the corner. See, look, it's Tony Jaa. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the sequel and the sequel to the sequel, and I'm looking at the other random things they spurred, such as a video game that they kept pitching to both the PlayStation and Xbox networks, and nothing is more like 2008 than the way they attempted to describe it to the press, which was, quote, a 2.5D side-scrolling brawler with intense fighting action, impressive free-running sequences, and highly cinematic quick-time action events. Uh, gamers everywhere just threw up a little bit in their mouths when they said highly <laughs> cinematic quick-time action events. Uh, but never got made, unfortunately. Uh, I, I would have loved time. to have seen that. But yeah, I'm reading all over the place that the second and third ones are pretty heavily banned. Yeah, it's sad. No, it's isn't sad. that kind of Ipmani so a little potential. bit? Because it doesn't don't the Ipmans get weird too? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, the third no, one has Mike Tyson in it. But not as weird as this. Not as weird as like these films no. got. It's uh, much higher production quality. Yeah. And you know, they the Mike Tyson fight is not terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. It's interesting because he's he's much bigger and it's a much different physical style. Yeah. So it's yeah. at least, you know, this visual contrast and they tried to choreograph it in a way that was interesting and, you know, kind of coddling uh, Mike Tyson's acting inability. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that guy would in that era would not have a face tattoo. Nobody had face tattoos. No, in that era. nobody would except for, you know, like people in New Zealand. Except for him and like Aaron um, Neville. Like Those are the two. Like really burly black men with. That's not a tattoo. That's a birthmark. Doesn't he have like a teardrop (laughs) tattoo on the other side though? I think he does. No, it's a birthmark. It's a mole. I thought he had a teardrop tattoo tattoo on the opposite side of the mole. No. Oh, sorry, Aaron Neville. The more you know. Uh, But one thing I do want to mention is also. Aaron Neville's 
does have a face tattoo. He does? does he? It's like a cross. What? Is oh, it's it? a cross. That's right. He's what got is? a cross on his cheek. That's what He's I'm thinking of. a cross on his cheek. Oh, this this is... I haven't looked at photos of Aaron Neville in a long time. Well... <laughs> There you go. Yeah, the mole the mole exists, but there's also I can I confused equally dumb tattoos, a teardrop with a cross on your cheek. Um and believe me, that's not the only tattoo the man has by the looks of it. Uh so moving away briefly from Aaron Neville, it also sounds like Ja did some of this to himself a little bit, because I yeah. guess, as reported in detail, Ja had a complete meltdown on the set of Ong Bak 2, where he simply disappeared for two months, and it was enormously behind schedule, wildly over budget. When he was found and returned to work, the director's role was taken away from him and handed to his mentor. So, something went on in that guy's life that also kind of caused this to happen. It's just it's sad because you have to you have to wonder, you know, if he didn't do the directing, if he was just the star, he could, probably could have had a much more successful career. Yeah. But he tainted himself and unfortunately has not really ever recovered. Yeah, uh, someone someone right quoted from this time said, uh, the passion just isn't there. The fire is completely gone from Jaws, the performer. He's put on weight. Not to Seagal levels, but he's lost all of his definition. With Unbox yeah. 3, it just seems that Tony doesn't care anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> See, in, in, this movie, in this movie, he was 27, like 26, 27. Yeah. You know, now, now he's like 42, and in the 15 intervening years, man, I thought, you know, I thought this was going to be the guy we were going to see in everything. You needed a token Asian character who knew martial arts because, you know, Jet Li is too old now. We got this guy. No. <laughs> and we ended up getting, what's the guy's name from, from Iman? Oh, Donnie Yen. Look. We kind of have him now. Donnie Yen's yeah. 50, but he's still got it. Yeah, yeah. And Donnie Yen also has credited this movie for kind of revive you know, for his later in life peak um this movie did a lot for the martial arts genre yes right at its release it was it was full of aging stars um talking about you know jackie chan Jet Li, those guys you know these guys who were still doing movies but they didn't have the longevity anymore to them uh and then you had this young guy come in with this this bold new style you know it's gonna shake everything up um and it really you know it it did revitalize interest in martial arts and i would think in a way you know this could be conjecture that itman and films like that might not exist without this movie on you know with, without this paving the way and getting interest back in that and um it just it it's funny that it's it's not aging super well but you watch these martial arts films from the 70s and 80s and they haven't aged super well but you can still see like oh man i see why people were so into this at the time to be entirely honest, though, I'm glad you brought up the 70s and 80s martial arts films, because going into this movie, I hit rent on Amazon, I was not looking at when it was made, I hadn't seen our docket, and I couldn't Uh-oh. figure it out. I could not figure out if this movie was made in There's, the 70s, the 90s, or the 2000s. I just didn't know. There are know. times where the film quality dips. Yes, bad. there's actually shots yeah, that look like they were shot with different cameras that were low res, oh, where they just sure. like cut to them, and I couldn't tell if this was a 1980s like movie. I couldn't tell. Um, it has a very 80s look to it. It totally at least does. In my eye. Uh, Especially that's, that's the gas station scene. You could tell <laughs> that that's when they were running out of money and using yeah. what they had. Right. Right. Them, I got to give them credit for this, though. It looked great 
kicking a dude while his legs were on fire. That scene is kind of <laughs> cool. And then he does like this twist, like kick. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And you yes. can tell it was shot with like four different cameras so that he right. could jump in the water and just do it not once. burn himself. Right. <laughs> yeah, I you think David's absolutely. That is not a stunt man. That no, is Tony John. Tony John is all his own stunts. Well. Yeah. I I love it. I I think that's great. Yeah, I think David. From what I'm from what I'm hearing, it sounds like this is you know a very pivotal film, even if it is kind of bizarre at times. And very briefly, before we close out the program, I do want to mention something that I would be remiss if I did not mention. I've now just learned when reading about Tony Jaw's bizarre absence during the remake during the sequel of this film, there were bizarre folklore stories around it that thought he might involve black magic in Cambodia for his absence, but then later. They tracked him down. He appeared on TV, weeping and vowing to complete the film. He then issued a public demand, a set of demands to the production house, threatening to disappear again if they were not met. Uh, so among the demands was the insistence that he be released from the long-term exclusive contract he signed with them. And shortly after this, he was whisked away in a car full of, quote, heavies, prompting speculation that he had been kidnapped. But not true. Joss said that when he reappeared, whatever happened to him was, quote, unsettling enough to him that he took refuge in a police station. Is this oh, like, what is happening? Is he just like Tylen's Mel Gibson minus the racism? I, I mean, I, it might even be racism we don't know that. about. It, you know, it could be, you know, like South Korea has this massive entertainment industry where people are signed up to these major conglomerates and they're like locked in for years and years, you know, to either sing or dance or act or all three, you know, for various companies. And I wonder if maybe that's that's what happened to him, if he signed up with someone too early and it was a company that wasn't going to take him anywhere I, in his career and he was desperate to get out. I think that he also might just be a really passionate martial artist who, yeah. you know, really loves his style and he put his heart and soul into getting it out there. Um it might not be the world's strongest creative and maybe that the pressures of that world were not meant for him. Yes. As, as, as Jimmy wrote on screen anarchy, in the comment section on May of 2010, great athlete, kind of crappy filmmaker will miss his moves. will miss his moves. Probably won't miss his films. Uh, uh, yeah, he's really impressive in the athletic department, but maybe not necessarily as a creative. And, and uh, like, you know, we talk about this movie like, oh, this is the Tony Jaw film. I mean, he did stuff like The Protector, um, and he's done other movies where you can see his prowess. And also The that. Bodyguard that I referenced earlier, and, not yeah, Kevin the Costner. Bodyguard. And The Bodyguard, too, he has a bigger role. Um, the, you know, he he does have a, a body of work for people to dive into. Um, it's just not as deep as I was hoping it would be. Well, all I will say to close us out then is that, you know, next week is you did this to us. And I'm certainly glad that we record ahead of time. That way the audience can't make us watch 1992's The Bodyguard. (laughs) But now that I've said that, we're probably doomed to an inevitable fate of really inexplicable non-chemistry between Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner. (laughs) Just remember, audience, I will always love you. Oh my God. Okay, so let's go around the table real quick. Where can we find everybody? Nicole Davis, where are you at online? 
Uh, you can find me shepherding our current Facebook page, f- Facebook page, facebook.com slash movie go round podcast or our now defunct podcast, uh, facebook.com slash geek cinema society, which features all three of us. Um, you can find me on Twitter under at your word whiz and that's y-o-u-r-w-o-r-d-w-h-i-z right on and what about you david you can of course find me around the internet uh under the username davluz that is d-a-v-l-u-z twitter snapchat instagram i'm there uh, as far as podcasts go you can find me on the heck yeah comics podcast heckyacomics.com a show i've put so much of my soul into i just purchased vanity plates about it and uh you can also find me on brokebot Mountain. I love it. That's awesome. Definitely check both of those shows out. My name's Brett Stewart. Find me on brettdavidstewart.com. I do Silver Screens and Politics, and I do this program, along with some other cool podcasts, including an upcoming official podcast, The Built Worlds Podcast. It's a company I work at. I'm actually getting paid to make a podcast now. And hey, uh, it, we have some really interesting people on we it, including <laughs> um, executives from Autodesk and Panasonic and uh, Women Who Code, we talked to today, all about women in the built industry, which is like architecture, construction, technology, all sorts of cool stuff. So check that out. It'll be out in March, so it'll be out by the time this comes out. Hey, everybody. Brett Stewart here. I'm hopping in in post uh, where I'm currently editing. I don't have a microphone, hence why I'm hopping in using my phone mic. But I do want to remind all of you that Future Classics is now next week since we reversed the schedule between Around the World and Future Classics. So we are going to be watching the Denzel Washington film Fences. That's right, the adaptation of the famous August Wilson play. That is me arguing, it was my pick, that that film will be a future classic. All right, I'll kick it back to myself now. Thanks. Thanks so much, everybody.